Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Supermates, the Husband and Wife Geek Cast. I'm Chris Franklin. I'm Cindy Franklin. And today we have a very special guest with us. He is an illustrator, writer, editor, webmaster, and all-around Renaissance man. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, piling this, on I'm piling this on thick. It's Rob Kelly. Rob of various uh, creative endeavors, including the fantastic book, Hey Kids Comics, True Life Tales from the Spinner Rack, which he edited edited and compiled. He is also the writer and co-creator of the great comic strip, uh, web strip, Ace Kilroy. And uh, he is also the editor-in-chief and creator of the Aquaman Shrine and the co-host of the Fire and Water podcast. And uh, Rob also does a few episodes of the Fire and Water podcast that are the Power Records podcast. He was nice enough to ask me on there as co-host, and so we've been doing that for a while in addition to all the other episodes he does with the Irredeemable Shag. Uh, so, welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Franklin. Oh, honey, please call me Cindy. Now, I have a question for you. Are you the one that sent Danny, when we had our youngest, an uh, Aquaman? A little stuffed Aquaman? Uh, maybe. Yes. 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 I yes. am. Okay, yes. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. I don't, you know, here's your thank you note six and a half years later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. awful of those. Yeah, we, you know, I, I think uh, we've said this before on the Power Records, but I was actually the uh, the founding member of Foam. On yes, the, on the yes. Aquaman Shrine. So the friends of Aquaman. So Aww. that's right. Yeah, the inaugural member of Foam. That it's, is right. That's right. So I have the certificate, and you know, there's it's it's membership has its privileges. Mm. <laughs> it's framed next to his college degree. That's right. I'm, 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 I'm more proud of it than the college degree. <laughs> so, oh my. Oh, so uh, this episode, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some Batman comics, but not so much because they're Batman, but because they are written by a, an author who me and Rob are big fans of. Uh, that's Alan Brennert. Alan Brenner is uh, actually uh, more famous as a TV writer and a novelist, but he has dabbled in comics from time to time. Um, he came uh, into comics, I believe, through his connection to the Wonder Woman TV series. And uh, I think, uh, you know, DC kind of asked, hey, you know, you want to, if you ever want to write any comics, and kind of opened the door for him. And uh, he actually, his first comic work was actually in the Wonder Woman book. I think it was like 231 and 232 in 1977. So, when the show was on. And then uh, he actually did a handful of Batman comics uh, here and there in the early 80s, and those are the ones we're going to be talking about today. Uh, but he went on to uh, write and produce uh, for L.A. Law, which he won Emmys for, and uh, worked on genre shows like The New Twilight Zone and The Revival of the Outer Limits, uh, in addition to uh, Star Trek Enterprise and Stargate Atlantis. Uh, so he's got some uh, good nerd Cred, and he's also uh, a best-selling author who has written uh, several books um, 
on uh, Hawaii, uh, which uh, Rob, you actually uh, you know a little bit about how he uh, how how he got interested in Hawaii, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he the story he wrote for my book, uh, the Hey Kids Comics. Um, he uh, he he saw Hawaii for the quote unquote saw Hawaii for the first time via a Dennis the Menace comic book, right? And it was Dennis the Menace goes to Hawaii, and that just like entranced him. Uh, and so the story he wrote uh, for my book, uh, he talks about how he went to Hawaii for the first time, and he went with I guess his girlfriend at the time. And it wasn't until after they landed on the island that he explained like why he wanted to go there so bad was because Dennis the Menace just inspired that in him. And his girlfriend was like, yeah, basically the same thing happened for her too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he just fell in love with the place and now it's like his home away from home. He's, I think of, of the, he's written, I think six or seven novels. And I think okay. out of those five of them or four of them are about, they're like historical dramas about Hawaii. Like he weaves in real people and real historical moments with his fictional characters. And then his new book is called Palisades Park, which is about the famous amusement park in North Jersey. Cause that's where he's from is that area. Oh, okay. And that's the one they used to advertise in the old silver HDC books, right? Oh, we've got yeah, that well, order. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a great book. It's a great, it's a great, great book. I don't read a lot of fiction, but I read his books because just the strength of his name and his, 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 his writing skills, and I really have enjoyed them. And, oh, wow. uh, but yeah, it's those Superman. In fact, I every time I find an old Palisades Park ad in an old comic book, I post it on his Facebook page. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I, I remember that. Uh, I remember seeing those in old. I pick up Silver Age books, and I was like, "Wow, they why did DC like hawk this amusement park?" But I guess it was kind of in their backyard, I guess in a way. So. Yeah, yeah. 39 cent coupon and stuff like that. It's <laughs> Superman and Batman talking about Palisades Park. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's neat. Uh, the, yeah, the Dennis and Menace story in, in Hey Kids, I really, I really like that because it's such, I mean, who would, that's such an odd way to, you know, get connected to something, but it just goes to show how, you know, a kind of, what most comic fans, most superhero comic fans would consider kind of an inconsequential comic book. Changed that guy's life, you know. Yeah, yep. Uh, and he made a built a good chunk of his career off of it, you know. So I mean, you just you just never know. You know? I'm curious. The woman that he went to Hawaii with, did they ever get married? Or I I I, I don't re- remember whether the the woman that he mentions is his is his wife. He's married. He's been married. I think a long time. Mm. Uh, I don't remember i don't think i thought to ask him necessarily whether that was the same woman or not yeah yeah, yeah some, sorry some... chick questions you know <laughs> <laughs> we gotta know about this stuff well and i remember something she said i think in in the story in in, in hey kids she said something like yeah i like that one but i like the mexico one better or something yeah, that, that's it yeah i mean it's it's kind of again that, that harkens back to a time of comics that's long gone where it's like they were comics made to sort of like kind of teach kids stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, nowadays the world is so small and there's the internet, of course, so you're, you're never going to do that. But like introducing kids to Hawaii was kind of like this foreign exotic land. I mean, of course it was published not that long after it became the 50th state. Right. So, uh, or maybe the 49th, I forget which one came first. I think it was 49th. Yeah. 49th and then Alaska. Alaska, Alaska, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't all that long after it just became a state. So they were probably trying to teach kids 
hey, here's this new thing we have called Hawaii. And it's like, they just don't do those nowadays. I'm not saying they should, because they just think, you know, who would read those? You just go to Wikipedia. Yeah. But it, it is a relic of a bygone era that, like, they would make a whole comic book basically just to teach kids about Hawaii. And, like, they did their research. Like, I bought the comic. I went and got a, a copy of it on eBay. And it's, oh. it's very informative. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not all the plot of Dennis you know, and go and get in mischief and stuff. But they work in a lot of all the real customs. And, you know, as a kid, if you were, I could see why you would be like, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> I mean, I could see why it would really transport you to like a whole nother land if you didn't never know heard of this place. Right. Yeah. And I, I remember in the book, he talked about how the artist really, you know, he, he kind of stepped outside the Dennis the Menace art style to draw the, the actual Hawaiian, you know, landscape and, and things like that. So. Right, right, right. Uh, we'll turn this into a Dennis the Menace podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess we better switch back over to talking about Batman. So sorry, I, I got us a little, maybe too. Off on a tangent. A ta- it's a podcast, right? It's supposed to go off on tangents. Uh, but uh, so, um, so Alan Brenner, he did some work for Marvel, but most of the comic stuff he's done has been for DC. And, uh, you know, two of these stories that we're going to talk about today were actually chosen for... The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which came out, the first version, which came out in uh, 1980. I actually came out in late 88, but it was for the 50th anniversary in 89. And, uh, you know, to get the guy's written just a handful of stories, and he got two stories in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. Yeah, his batting average is ridiculous. (laughs) He's only written written about 10 comics. That's his whole career. And I used to say, and I've said this to him personally, and I've said it to anybody that will listen, um, you know, he's written about ten comic book stories. I'd say six of which are bona fide, enduring classics. Yeah. Three of which are superb, and one is merely really good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the guy is just an amazing, his batting average is, is crazy good. Yeah, I mean, he should have a, you know, a, a tops card, you know, and come with a pack of gum. Yep. I mean, it's bad. Yep. Like yep. <laughs> so, so, I, so we'll jump into uh, the first Batman story he wrote was actually uh, in the, uh, in a very special anniversary issue back when they, they really did anniversary issues up good. Um, it's uh, To Kill a Legend from uh, Detective Comics number 500, March 1981. Um, actually, in, 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 a confession time here. I actually read, I didn't read that comic in, I didn't read that story in detective number 500. I read it the following year when they reprinted it. And in the, uh, year's best comic stories, uh, issue of the, uh, best of DC blue ribbon digest. Me too. Me yeah. too. Oh, you did too. Okay. Yep. yep. So, there you go. So I remember, I mean, I read that and it was like that, it was like that. That this is like even I don't know how old I was. I like six, seven, or something. I'm like this is like the best Batman story anybody's ever written. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't think my opinions really changed honestly since then. Um, as far as a single issue story, I, I still kind of think it's probably one of the best um, ever written. And um, so it was. It, you know, later, years later, I tracked down number five hundred. It's full of great stories, but you just can't beat that that opener. So, uh, so let's talk about it here. It was. Uh, uh, drawn by Dick Giordano and penciled and inked. Uh, Adrian Roy did the colors. John Costanza lettered, and Paul Levitz was the editor. Bruce Wayne. Hey, went- I, I do know oh, that I, I'm actually friends with Vin Trapini, which is Dick Giordano's nephew. Okay. And he said this was 
one of his favorite stories. Dick Jr. Oh. said it was one of his favorite stories he had ever done. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so yeah, that that's cool. Well, I'm glad you, 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 you said something about Batman I didn't know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you learn something every day. So, uh, yeah, because Vin, uh, Vin Trapini, was he Sal Trapini's son? Mm-hmm. So, see, I knew Dick Giordano and Sal Trapini were brother-in-laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, it's cool. So, okay, and To Kill a Legend, Bruce Wayne awakens from a nightmare he hasn't had in years, reliving the murder of his parents. Unable to sleep, he takes to the streets as the Batman. He soon thwarts an attempted mugging and is stunned when he chases a criminal to Crime Alley, the locale where his parents were murdered, which should be on the other side of Gotham. Even odder is the sudden appearance of Robin, who should be on a plane to Europe. These inexplicable occurrences are the work of Batman's old ally, the Phantom Stranger, who has come to offer his friend a chance to prevent the murder of his parents on a parallel earth. Batman agrees, and soon he and Robin are whisked away to a strange world that has never heard of masked heroes, and in fact has no heroic fiction to inspire them. Observing the wanes of this world, the dynamic duo discovers young Bruce is quite a brat. Robin wonders if they have the right to deny this world its only hero, but Batman vows to save this set of parents, no matter the consequences. Searching for information on the whereabouts of his parents' murderer, Joe Chill, Batman and Robin interrogate Lou Moxon, the man who hired Chill to kill the Waynes in the Earth-1 universe. Moxon has never heard of Chill, so the trail goes cold. While Robin keeps an eye on the Waynes, Batman, searching for anything on Chill, breaks into police headquarters. There, a young lieutenant named James Gordon surprises him. Somehow, Batman manages to touch something inside Gordon, allowing the young cop to trust this strange man. The Waynes decide to see a movie, and Robin realizes the timetable of events has been moved up. Following leads given to him by Gordon, Batman finds Joe Chill near death, a victim of Lou Moxon's revenge for sending Batman to his doorstep. The Dark Knight detective learns another killer is being sent after the Waynes, and deduces the passing of leap years in the interim since his parents' murders on Earth-1 have moved the date up five days. Robin tells the Waynes, but his reservations of saving them are soon dashed when the gunman steps out from the shadows. Just as the Teen Wonder begins to act, Batman leaps into the scene and disarms the would-be killer in front of Thomas, Martha, and young Bruce. Batman takes out the failed assassin and just as suddenly the Phantom Stranger appears to take the dynamic duo home. The heroes leave pondering what path young Bruce will take now. Three weeks later we revisit the wanes of this world. There has been a drastic change in young Bruce. He now studies books on criminology and psychology. He exercises as if he had a new purpose. As he walks in the sunlight toward Wayne Manor, he casts a familiar shadow. Wow. <laughs> That's a story. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you should be doing the synopses for the Fire and Water podcast. First, <laughs> That's right down there. Secondly, it's like, I, I, yeah, just hearing you relate the story, it's like, that thing is just written within an inch of its life. I mean, it just, the, the clockwork precision of how all the pieces fall into place uh, it still works perfectly well. And it's, it's amazing because it's, it, it brings in an element that, you know, on paper should never be used, which is Batman going to a parallel universe. Right. You know, there's that like, day, like Batman shouldn't be going into different dimensions. That's no, 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 it's not Batman. And yet it works flawlessly, partly because it's done through the Phantom Stranger. Right. But, right. uh, yeah. yeah, it's just the idea. And then, 
no, and then the I'm sorry, and then the epilogue, you know, which is the kicker that he still that you know this Bruce Wayne's parents are not murdered. You're like, oh, okay, well, he's just going to live an ordinary life. You're like, no, he's still going to become Batman, but it'll be a Batman who is not driven out of revenge and pain. It'll be one, you know, more of admiration and respect for this being that saved his parents' life. And you're like, wow, this guy's going to be Batman, but he won't be a sad Batman. Right. He'll be, and you're like, you know, it's like, I want to follow that guy's adventure. <laughs> yeah. you know? Give me a book about that Batman. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like to me, he's kind of going to be the Batman that to me, when Dick Grayson grows up and he becomes Batman, the kind of Batman he becomes. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, as far as. A little more well balanced Batman. Exactly. He's yeah. more well balanced, more, you know, they both, you know, he suffered a tra- tragedy and well, as well as losing his parents, Dick Grayson did, but he had Batman to show him a path. Right. Whereas right. Batman had to forge a path on his own. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And you know, I think it's 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 interesting. The I was thinking when I was writing these notes, I'm like, okay, it's a it's really it's a really a wonder that they never revisited this specific Batman, uh, you know, young Bruce from this story as Batman. And I and I had to stop and think, okay, could he possibly have been? Uh, you remember there was that Legends of the DC Universe special that was like a crisis special like a lost chapter of crisis on infinite earth yeah yeah and there was a there was an earth i forgot what they called it was it like earth six or something i don't remember but it was an earth of like multicultural version of the justice league and batman and robin were like father and son and they were really just kind of laid back and it was really almost like a super frenzy type world you know and uh, I, I had to stop and say well maybe that was him but there was a superman there uh, so, you know, there's no Krypton. They, they bring that up, you know, in this story. There's right, no right, story right. For, for Krypton to orbit. So, um, uh, so, so it couldn't have been that world. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it would be. It's, 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 they've shown rema- uh, incredible restraint that they've never, that they've never uh, sequelized and bastardized the story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right, it would be tempting to, to go back to this world, and at the same time, like, yeah, but you'd ruin it if you did. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's best that, 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 that final panel of young Bruce Wayne casting the shadow as Batman. You're like, that's it. That's the perfect final way to end this story. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. perfect. No wonder Giordano said that it's one of his favorite stories. I mean, the artwork is great. Dick Giordano is always one of my favorites. And it's just, it's, it's an iconic story and it's done by one of DC's iconic artists. So it's like a perfect melding of story and artist. Right. I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm going to shock some people, but there's times that I actually prefer Giordano's Batman to Neil Adams and in, in him or just Neil Adams by himself, because there's just something more, solid about his Batman. I don't know, something more super heroic about him. I don't know. It's like he still works like the Adams Batman in the shadows, but he just, he's like, he's, he's got a little, maybe just a touch more Dick Sprang in him or something. I don't know. It's there's just, uh, and I really like the way he draws Robin. Uh, yep. he, he always drew a very, uh, you know, a, a teen wonder Robin that actually looked like he was 18, 19, you know, uh, and, uh, like guys like him and, and Don Newton, uh, and of course, George Perez, uh, you know, really made Dick look like he had grown up, but he still looked good in the suit, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. and, uh, I was always, uh, always a fan of the way he drew Robin. Uh, so this was, uh, probably my introduction to, uh, the Phantom Stranger. Uh, and, uh, Rob, I know you're a big fan of the Phantom Stranger, so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
So you were probably happy to see him in, involved in this. Yeah, and, and also Brenner uses him perfectly. I mean, the Phantom Stranger, as much as I love the Phantom Stranger, and I do love his 70s series that was written by Len Wein, drawn by Jim Apparel, where he is the protagonist, I think the Phantom Stranger works better as the guy who comes in for a couple of pages, you know, does his little magic flippity-do and then disappears. <laughs> and this is the perfect thing here. He shows up, he's all creepy and mysterious, he doesn't answer all of Batman's questions, and then he's gone. And to me, it's like, it's per- and it's Brennard is a comic nerd like we are, yeah. and he knows this stuff. He knows these characters, and so he has that knowledge to draw upon where he can think, hey, this is the perfect guy. To, you know, he's, he's able to pluck that out of his brain yeah. and be like, hey, that's the perfect guy to use in this moment. And as we'll talk about in the other stories that we'll talk about, you know, he brings in these characters that you wouldn't necessarily think to bring in to a Batman story. And he uses them quite effectively, and I think it's because he just has that, that 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 he has it in his bones, you know, that knowledge yeah. of, of comic books. Well, you know, and you said earlier this 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 shouldn't this whole parallel parallel universe thing really shouldn't work in a Batman story, and if not handled right, it honestly could end up like you know a fifties Batman story, or yeah. you know, yeah. not that those aren't fun, but they you know like you know Professor Nichols cast Batman to a parallel world or something, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it just you hear Bat- Batman going to a different dimension just immediately sounds like a bad idea yeah. because it just sounds so out of feel for what you want you think you want from a Batman story. But you see this and it just works flawlessly. It just works perfectly. Right, right. Uh, you know this. You know I'm not a hundred percent sure, but this may be the first time. I saw Batman's origin in a comic book. I, I can't mm. think of any place I would have seen it earlier in the comics I had. And, of course, at that point, it hadn't been adapted into any media because the Superpowers episode, The Fear, was the first time that it was ever you know put in animation or any kind of other media. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was, it, you know it was, I don't remember if it was exactly, but I was just trying to think, could I have seen it somewhere else? Although mm. I do, one thing I do think is interesting is, uh, you, I don't know if you've heard this uh, last episode we did, uh, The Untold Legend of the Batman. Yes, and, yes. And uh, we, uh, when I was looking, of course I had it out doing notes and everything, and I had both books out. Uh, some of the panels are like exactly the same. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're just redrawn from what Byrne and Apero had done um, in The Untold Legend of the Batman. Which, um, you know, Paul Levitz might have said, you know, he was the editor of both. He might have said, hey, keep it consistent. This is the, the canon version of the origin now, you know. Right, right. Uh, but it was, it was kind of neat to see, hey, you know, <laughs> kind of going. Which, as much as I love Giordano, you know, if you, if you pay attention to his stuff, you, he, did, he did swipe here and there, you know. like yeah, uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, he was a commercial. He was a commercial artist, you know. Yeah, so he came. He came from that world where it's like that wasn't unacceptable to do sometimes. Right, like you know, like occasionally you'd see uh, an Alfred he drew look just like an Alfred Neil Adams and him had done, you know, two or three years earlier or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So, so it was, it was just kind of interesting to see, and nothing, uh, nothing against the man because you know he's one of my heroes. So, but it's just kind of, it's just kind of funny how it pops out at you when you've been looking at it for a while. Um, I think the closest. I think the. I'm sorry, but I think okay. the, the the closest his origin, Batman's origin, has ever come to being in another media before that episode of Super Friends that you mentioned is there is a there is one line mentioned in the pilot for the 1966 Batman TV yes. series 
where Adam West talks about, and Adam, I'm sorry, Bruce Wayne says, you know, ever since my par- my parents were murdered by dastardly criminals, yeah, and then he, then he goes on, and you're like, wow, that's a pretty dark element yeah. to throw into a, to a show that was so friggin' goofy, but I, <laughs> but I also appreciated it that they made the effort to at least try and tell the audience, well, why is this guy Batman? Why does this guy dress up as a bat? Like, what is that about? <laughs> yeah. Um, Yes, that's that's true. Yeah, and I, you know, I, and maybe I heard that before, uh, but uh, yeah, and that, that's right. That that is, it's kind of a strange, um, strange in, in, in that show. But you know, I think um, most will agree the show early on did have a pretty good mix at first, but then it just went to straight goofy. You know, by the, yeah. by the time getting, yeah, by the time we're getting Batman on a surfboard, you know that we're far <laughs> far past. That would have been that would have been horrendous if they had done an episode of his origin, and it's like. Bang, bang, oof, ow, and it's like the parents falling over dead with the sound effects. Oh, that's just awful. You're going to have to say some Hail Marys tonight or something. That's awful. Dude. That is awesome. Most inappropriate Batman ever. Joe Chill shows up and, and, you know, and as soon as he comes out and, Thomas Wayne's going to fight him. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, about fifteen thugs in in coordinated yeah. outfits show up to have a yeah. fight scene yep. with him. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so this bad, is going to be my bad, this is going to be my only appearance on the show, right? <laughs> Oh. No, no, you're sick and twisted. We like it. Uh. Oh, honey, no. You led him down this path. You will help walk this path with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you you, you, were the guy on the corner saying, hey, you want to do a podcast? <laughs> First taste is free. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I have a question, you know, um, in this story. Uh, again, I'm referencing the episode we did last week, but, you know, the whole uh, the whole idea that Lou Moxon hired Joe Chill to kill his parents um, was, you know, established in the Silver Age and the the first Batman story where Thomas Wayne wore a Batman suit and everything. And uh, so they don't get into the that Thomas Wayne wore a Batman costume in this story, but they do, you know, they do go after Moxon, Batman and Robin, and. Uh, so they come in and they just start like, you know, beating the crud out of Moxon's men and Batman like drives a, a truck into something and blows it up. And it's just like really awesome panel of Batman running away from the explosion. Looks like it's from an eighties action movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But what if Lou Moxon was like a legitimate businessman in this world? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. You know, I, mean, that's, <laughs> I, I got to thinking about that. I'm like, of course he's not because you know, he, you know, he's, he, he has a word balloon that a thought balloon. That's, you know, I, you know, I've thinking about Wayne, you know, and all that, but, but, uh, you know, Batman doesn't know for sure. You know, there's no Krypton. There's, there's no historic, you know, heroic literature. So maybe Lou Moxon's like a nice guy in this world, but Batman's never been too concerned about due process, no matter what world he is on. He well, this just, is true. This is just true. Battles, just battles forth. Yeah, this, this is true. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is a great story, but it, again, at the same time, Here's the basic problem I have with this. Okay. In the fact that Batman looks on his own personal feelings to save Martha and Thomas Wayne because he can. However, do you follow the precept that the goods of the many outweigh the needs of the one? He doesn't give a shit. (laughs) He just, you know... 
<laughs> you gotta wonder. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a great story. But sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. We're not talking Star Trek today. Well, you just did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Cindy, you started it. You yeah, can't, right. you know, come on. Oh, no, 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 no. Just because I'm a chick, I'm allowed to have my opinion. So no, <laughs> we, no, no. we don't, we don't. <laughs> well, you've got a point. I mean, Robin... That's that's one thing I like about this is Batman and Robin switch roles in a way. Because yes. Robin is being, you know, he's he's being logical and 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 pragmatic, level headed, yeah. level headed, and he's like, hey, you think we really ought to be mucking around with you know destiny fate. and fate? Yeah. And, and Batman's like, I don't care. I got a chance to save my parents, you know, and and you know, it, but but I like that because it makes this is a very human Batman. You know, this is this isn't super mega god Batman you get nowadays, you know, this is a very fallible Batman, but he, you know, he doesn't, he, he had, he dreamed about his parents' murder for the first time in years. I mean, in the modern comics, every time he cl- blinks, he sees his parents die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, Talk so. about your tortured soul. Yeah. But, I mean, it, just, it is one of those things. Yeah, that's that, a good point. I mean, you, yeah, you, know, you, can, you can, you can question his, his, uh, but you know, motivation. It, it worked out in the end because his world's going to get a Batman without I, the without know, the body count. I know it worked, but I just wonder <laughs> if it's not a trite, convenient. No, it's cool. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's convenient. settled then. <laughs> that last panel is awesome, so it can't be. Uh, okay. I, I did like it, but I, I like that angle though. That 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 in this respect, Batman doesn't care, and that. That makes him a flawed guy, you know, like yeah. on this topic, he cannot be reasoned with, which is, I think, a nice angle for a guy who is the epitome of reason and logic and deduction. And right. Like, yeah. You know, it's like people, you know, where, you know, you can meet someone who's a regular person and then you, you hit on one particular topic and they're a complete loon. Yeah. And you're just like. Whoa, you know, like, wait a minute, I was just talking to this regular person, and all of a sudden, he told me that he saw a dinosaur yesterday. You're like, what? You know, it's like, there are people like that. And I, I like the idea that even though Batman is one of the great heroes of, like, all comic bookdom, there is this one part of him that he will, as you just said, Cindy, like, you know, basically risk the betterment of a whole planet full of people. To get what he wants, I think that's kind of like okay. He's kind of screwed up, you know. I kind of like that. Yeah, and I and I, in a way, I kind of like it too because he doesn't come out and say it, but it's like, you know, the Phantom Stranger offered it to him, so he's probably like, you know what, the universe owes me this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the multiverse yep. owes me this. Yep. I, how many times have I saved it? You know. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So it's kind of like you know how Superman uh, getting the multiverse thing, but you know the the Earth Two yep. Superman got Lois at the end of. Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. He, damn it, he deserved her. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, um, yeah. So I think uh, one one other thing, real quick. We talked about Thomas Wayne being the first Batman. So Moxon, uh, you know, Moxon was involved. Obviously, he had the grudge with Thomas Wayne. So it makes one wonder that if Thomas Wayne actually did dress as Batman, how freaked out were the Waynes and Bruce? when Batman jumped in front of him. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a weird thing. Yeah. I, I never thought of that before until I was working on the notes for this. And I'm like, they should have seen a Batman before. Yeah. <laughs> so so that adds another wrinkle to maybe him, uh, this this Bruce wanting to become Batman. So, well, anybody else got anything on this one? I'm good. I mean, one of the other thing is that's worth mentioning is this story is like, what, 15 pages? Yeah. 
Like, you know, nowadays you can't tell any nice story in 15. It would, oh, it would no. be six issues. You know, this yeah. would be a trade of, you know, Batman going, Batman goes to a parallel universe and it would be all 15 pay. You know, this thing is in and out. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no extra material. Here. This thing really moves like clockwork and just is pulled off very efficiently. Yeah, I mean, if it was done nowadays, there'd be like two whole issues of them standing outside yeah. the Wayne's window, debating yeah. Robin and Batman talking heads, debating back and forth about. Yeah. But this is wrong, Batman. He's the only. He can be the only hero. I don't care. You know, for like two issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate the brevity of it, and maybe that's another reason that you know Brenner knew that this premise, you know, might start falling apart if it went on too long. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's kind of like a movie you see when you when you're watching it and you enjoy it. And then you get out of the theater and you go, hey, wait a minute. You know, that kind of thing. But in the, in the moment, you enjoyed it. You know, and maybe that, that could be kind of something, too. It's like, I wouldn't want to see five pages of the Phantom Stranger talking to Batman. It's like, no, it's a couple of panels. You know, here and then, here. Here you go. Parallel universe. All right, I'm out of here. You know, yeah. like, okay, good. Nice and, nice and quick. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. I, the only, my only gripe about this thing is that I do wish somebody had adapted it. You know, it either had been on... Like Batman the Animated Series, uh, uh, the Brave and the Bold kind of came close when they involved the Phantom Stranger in the the Chill of the Night episode. Um, mm-hmm. I heard he was going to be on there. I heard Kevin Conroy was doing his voice, and I was thinking maybe they're going to do to kill a legend. And of course they didn't. They mixed uh, the first Batman and and the the origin of Batman where he catches up with Joe Chill together. Yeah, but, but you know it was still nice to. It, it still kind of made me think of that, just because the Phantom Stranger gets involved and and it, it was neat. But I, I I would like to see, you know, it would be nice. To, I I don't want to see just anybody adapt it, but if if Bruce Timm's bunch had adapted it, or the guys that worked uh, James Tucker's bunch on the Brave Batman, the Brave and the Bold had done it, it would have been really cool. But yeah. oh yeah, uh, the, the Bruce a uh, Bruce Tim uh, version of it would have been amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Keys to the kingdom to him. I, his version is gold to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm it not going really to argue with you there. I mean, they could even work it in a Justice League episode, you know, and, and uh, you know, or maybe sent somebody else with Batman other than Robin just to kind of be as Jiminy Cricket or something, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. But uh, maybe, yeah, I don't know. But it would have been nice to see. But, oh, well. So, well, um, I think we're going to take a quick break and run a trailer, and then we'll be back with our second story, which is Interlude on Earth 2. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick, and Arisian Woody Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water Podcast. So welcome back to uh, our special episode here, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the next 
story, um, and that is from Brave and the Bold number 182. Um, uh, is that from January 1982? I think about January. I don't think it's January. I think it's June. I think it's, I think it's from I think it's from March. I think. I think it's covered in March. Oh no, it says January on the cover. Okay. Right. Okay. I thought because I thought I read somewhere else that maybe I'm mixing up with the other issue. Okay, so it is January 1982, which means it came out in late 81, of course. Um, and it's called Interlude on Earth Two, and the cover's by Jim Aparo, and uh, the interior artwork is by Jim Aparo, which means he did the uh, inks and the letters. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl, G- Carl Gafford was a colorist, and Dick Giordano, there he is again, was the editor. He was the editor of the Batman books at this point. As Paul Levitz got booted upstairs, Dick Giordano come in, then he got booted upstairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, on Earth 2, Justice Society members Dick, Robin Grayson, and Ted Starman Knight respond to a violent electrical storm terrorizing Gotham. But this is no ordinary storm. It is the work of Robin's old foe, Hugo Strange, apparently returned from the grave to avenge his defeat at the hands of Robin and this world's deceased Batman. Strange's holographic image taunts the defeated Robin and Starman as the lightning absconds with Starman's all-powerful cosmic rod. Meanwhile, on Earth-1, a melancholy Batman stalks through a similar storm in an unfamiliar cemetery, uncertain why he was drawn to the place. Suddenly, a lightning bolt stabs from the sky and Batman finds himself face-to-face with the tombstone of Bruce Wayne, Clearly, he has been transported somehow to Earth-2. Seeking the aid of JSA or Dr. Fate to send him home, Batman runs into Robin, who is seeking help against Strange. The ex-boy wonder tells Batman of Strange's return when machine gun fire begins to rain outside the JSA HQ. It is Catwoman's panther jet, long thought destroyed, but now terrorizing the Gotham streets. Batman barks orders at Robin, who responds by saving Batman's hide. Reminding him he is not the teenage partner he knows, but a grown man who knows a thing or two about crime fighting. The two work together and subdue the craft, only to be thrown into battle with a giant top, once used by the obscure bat villain, the Spinner. The dynamic duo become a terrific trio when Batwoman arrives on the scene and saves the day. Strange isn't done tormenting our heroes, sending the classic Batmobile of 1950 after the Cape Crusaders. Robin is forced to destroy the car he loved and discovers it is no copy but the actual Batmobile which should be resting in the Batcave beneath Wayne Manor. The three deduce that this is where Strange is waiting for them. The journey to the outskirts of Gotham via Whirly Bat is an awkward one for the three crime fighters. Robin not only resents Batman treating him like a child but his very existence for being so much like the man he knew as partner and father. Batwoman can barely stand to see the visage of the man she loved and lost again, having put her past behind her. And Batman is forced to face not only a Batwoman very much like the Kathy Kane who died only months before, but also his very mortality. Arriving at the Batcave, the trio bury their differences in order to stop Strange, who pits the giant robot dinosaur from the Batcave's trophy room against them. For Robin and Batwoman, defeating a robot in the image of their Batman proves even more difficult. At last, their foe Hugo Strange stands revealed as a misshapen mass of flesh and bone, having barely survived the near-fatal fall he suffered in his last encounter with, Bat- with his Batman. Batman surmises Strange lured them there for a very specific reason, so they would release him from his anguished existence by destroying him. In the end, it is Strange himself who ends his life, reduced to dust by the power of the Cosmic Rod. 
The following day, in the cemetery where Batman entered this world, the heroes say their goodbyes, and fences are mended between the erstwhile Batman family. After a recovered Starman sends Batman home with his cosmic rod, he asks Robin what brought Batman to that cemetery on his Earth that night. Robin replies, I don't know, Ted, and frankly, I'm not sure I want to. As we leave the story, once more we see the tombstone of Bruce Wayne casting the shadow of the bat. Another wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, baby. Yeah, that's right. Well, this this is the the this is why I'm Earth to Chris <laughs> right here. This is <laughs> this this is what nailed nailed that coffin shut. Uh, I had encountered Earth Two. Uh, I actually had the first the last issue of All Star Comics number seventy four. Um, you know, I was like I don't know three or something, and my mom bought it for me. And I remember, you know, thinking, why does Robin look like that? And um, and then, you know, a few months later, I got uh, the Adventure Comics, the issue, uh, the, I think the third issue in the Batman, uh, the Death of Batman storyline where they avenge his death. And uh, so, you know, I, I kind of felt like a connection to this automatically. Uh, and I liked Robin's suit when I'd see, I saw him in a few other places, but man, Jim Apparel drew it better than anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't think he looked better, and that's that's with Jerry Ordway and George Perez drawing him too. But uh, the way he gave him that cool cow, half cow, and and uh, it just it's just such a how the crap did that cow stay on? Though I don't know how it worked around the back of his hair. That's what I've always wondered. <laughs> but it looked great. Who cares? <laughs> Essentially, looks like he painted his neck green, you know. But uh, but. Man, it's just a, such a sharp outfit. And, you know, of course, you know, later there'd be some elements of that that would work into kind of Tim Drake's Robin outfit, which makes sense because Neil Adams designed the original version of this one, too. So, but uh, everybody drew it a little bit different, but I don't think anybody drew it better than Apero. Uh, so, you know, the cover, it's, it's, it's funny. It says, uh, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, when I picked this book up, I asked the same thing. I'm like, okay, I know this is the... Robin of Earth 2. Who's this woman, and what's with the bald guy, and why does his head look like that? Uh, mm. <laughs> which is cool, because it's got like a cool zipatone. Uh, that is zipatone, right? Is that what's going no, on? It's, no, it's a board, It's a thing called duotone. It's a type duotone. of board. That's a, it's a type of art board that is chemically treated, and when you pour, uh, when you run over a certain kind of water, a certain kind of ink over it, it gives you that brownish... Uh, line pattern that's already set in the paper. So I'm sure, so a pair must have drawn the Hugo Strange head on a piece of duotone and then they just dropped it on top of the other piece of artwork of, of the rest of the Oh, okay. Okay. So that makes sense. And it, it, I mean, it looked, it almost, I mean, the way it's shaded and everything, it almost looks like a photograph of a face. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it has a ghostly, otherworldly feel to it. It's like the yeah. perfect use of that of that board. So yeah, it looks it just and the Batmobile's charging at him, and even though Batwoman's cape's colored wrong, we'll forgive him. But it's just that's just a sharp cover. Uh, so uh, Rob, did you pick this one up off the stands? Yes, this is actually um, I believe. I guess if 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 I don't I don't remember exactly the timing. I believe this is the first Alan Burnett story I ever read. I might have read the To Kill a Legend in the DC Digest, depending on when that got published. Right. Uh, whether that was before this or not, but I can distinctly remember going to Seven Eleven, 
buying this issue of Brave and the Bold. I still live near that 7-Eleven that I went to. I rode on my bike. Yeah. I bought, I bought that issue of Brave and the Bold. I brought it downstairs. I went down to the basement. And that's where I read a lot of my comics. And uh, that's probably a glimpse into my life that nobody needs. But I went down <laughs> to the basement, and I read that comic. And I remembered reading that story, being completely and utterly in love with it, and flipping to the front page and being like, who is this Alan Brenner guy? This guy is good, man. This guy is freaking good. Because I thought the story was scary, um, uh, exciting. It had all this great character stuff. Uh, I just thought it was perfect. And it's funny when you now that you've you've read this, you've done two synopses sort of back to back. How many thematic similarities there are? I mean, it's another right. story of Batman going to another world. It ends on literally the same way, which is the shadow of the bat mm-hmm. sort of being the comment mm-hmm. on something. Um, but yet, and it, but it, but again, it's 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 got this heart to it, and it's about characters. It's about yeah. these people interacting. It's about. I mean, we, we'll get to this when we go to do the third one, but one of the things that impressed me so much about Alan, Brenner, Alan Brennard's work is his stories are about something. They're yeah. about, like, you know, Detective 500 is about getting a second chance. Mm-hmm. This story is about facing your own mortality. Uh, the later one that we'll get to is about, you know, sort of regret and, and you know, that kind of thing. But it's like I, I beat this drum on, the, on, on the, my own podcast uh, too much. But I'm like I'm very bored now with comic stories or just plots. They're just or they're just about their own universes. Yeah, they're not about any sort of recognizable human emotion. Right. And in all of these right. stories that Brenner wrote, they were about things that you or I go through, but they're just heightened because he's a superhero. But it's it's about a guy. You know, this is a guy being transported to another world where the earlier version of himself is dead. That's a great hook, and the yeah. fact that he yeah. can't he can't learn to treat Robin as anything other than a teen sidekick when this Robin is like, you and I are the same age. Stop it. I'm not, yeah. a, I'm not your teen yeah. sidekick. Yeah. It's just, it, and he, he managed to fit all that in amid this great superhero plot. And again, in like 15 pages, yeah. you know, the story is like 15, because there was a backup strip in this comic. Yeah. Nemesis. So it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, what an incredible economy of storytelling. To, to fit all this in. And, and even at the age I was when I read it, which was 10, I still just thought this is one of the best Batman stories I ever read. And it still is to me. Yeah. I would still put it in my yeah. 10 favorite Batman stories of all time. Yeah. I would actually, uh, because it's so important to me, this probably, and, and justice league 200 is close, but this is probably the sing my single favorite comic book. Um, and yeah. you know, if I had to, if the house was on fire and I could grab one comic, it'd probably be this one. Just be, <laughs> just because it means so much to Cindy, me. Hold on, one second, Cindy. Hold on, wait, Cindy. Hold on, I'll get, I just gotta go back and get that. That's right, fine. Hold on. Get the kids and Cindy out my, first, and the dog. I gotta, I gotta get my bag full of flag points, and then I'm gonna come right out. I'm gonna grab this comic. I'm done. Oh, honey, trust me. I know where I fall on the ladder of priority. There. You're at the top, baby. At the top. Uh, but uh, I got gra- I got to grab my amigos first, but then I'll come back and get this comic. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I think I bought this one. I bought this one off the stands, and I'm and this is this is unusual. But I remember for some reason, it seemed like Brave and the Bold showed up usually at Begley's, which is where your mom works, Cindy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I probably bought this comic book from your mom, <laughs> my mother in law. Uh, so but, you know, obviously, I was which was hilarious because even though our our mothers worked three stores apart in the same strip mall, 
and Chris went to one elementary school. I went to another. We didn't end up meeting until we were up in high school. And we yeah. met once, which I don't remember, and he tells me we did. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's that's how memorable story. I was. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, so I remember buying this at, at Begley's. And uh, my original copies, actually, this is a second copy I've got because my original copy just shredded. I read it so many times. Um, and uh, But, yeah, I, I just it, – it's – you're like you. You nailed it. I mean, it, it's about it, these stories. Explore. They're like good. They're like any good fiction used to be. Um, you know, like a good episode of The Twilight Zone or Star Trek. They explore the human condition through this. Yeah. You know, this fantasy. You know, and and that's that's what Batman's like. You said Batman's face with a in a world where he's dead. I mean, and Robin's face dealing with here's here's the guy that was like my father up walking around, but this is this. He's him, but he's not him. And, and you know, Batwoman's got all this regret because, you know, she was in love with Batman. And one day he acted cold toward her because he got married. And, and right. you know, there's just all this. What a, I mean, what a stroke of genius it was for him to say, I'm going to put Batwoman in this. You know, because mm -hmm. she, Batman's dead on her world and she's dead on Batman's world. You know, yep. I mean, just I mean, just putting her. I mean, it could have been great just Batman and Robin, but. She's like the the extra little you know cherry on top that just makes the whole thing just taste so much better <laughs> because uh, I never even knew who Batwoman was. I think this was my first um, my first ex uh, introduction to her. She had uh, had never. I don't think she had been in any of the reprints I had read, uh, and I had just missed her appearances in Batman Family. Uh, I may have had the issue. I had issues of Detective around when she was killed. Um, but I don't think I had the, the issue where she actually died. I had the issues where Batman was like, you know, trying to avenge her death and, and all that. But I, I didn't have any if previous experience with her. So, um, that was kind of a cool way to, to meet her. I've always kind of had a, uh, a fondness for her be just because of this story. Um, I, I've always believed that if more comic book stories were written like this, Superhero comics would have a broader appeal to different kinds of people because they are more about something recognizable and not just sort of obsessed with their own continuity minutia. Right. You know, I think, I mean, like, Cindy, when did you read these stories? Did you read these recently or did you read these when you were younger? Since Chris and I have been together. I mean, you know, so I've read them. Chris and I have been together for, what, 23, 24 years? Yeah, dating-wise and then married. And, yeah. you know, when we first started dating, he's like, here, you've got to read this. You know, so. <laughs> these are the... Wow, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> these are important. Read these. Well, she was reading comics anyway. I was reading comics anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. That's, time, that's, you know, a, that's putting all the money on one number and spinning the wheel, dude. I mean, that's... <laughs> Well, you know, like in our, like we said, you know, she, uh, this, I think we talked about this in like our first episode. She came over to our house, my house, my parents' house with some friends and uh, she came in my room and I'm really nervous, you know, with my friends. I'm like, oh God, my action figures are all over. I got posters, <laughs> comics. Oh God. There's, you know, I really, I liked her thing. I thought she was cute. And she sits down and sits on my bed and picks up a stack of comics and starts reading them. So wow. you know, I was in love, you know, <laughs> so yeah, but at some point I said, you know, you, you need to read these, They're, these are, these are some of the best Batman stories. And she, so she had read all these before. I mean, she reread them for purposes of the show. Now me, you know, my mom worked at Begley's and what I usually read was, for, 
I read Marvel stuff when I was going to Begley's before Chris and I met, you know, like I read Captain America and the X-Men and I read Amethyst and, you know, and different ones like that. And I didn't really read DC books until after Chris and I started going out. Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My Marvel books were, you know, I mean, that's, I read a lot of Marvel books back then too. So, you know, it's, it's, and I read as much Marvel as I do DC nowadays, but, uh, but I was more of a DC guy, but. But uh, yeah, so so yeah, she she had some previous exposure to all all three of these tales. But uh, but I mean, uh, don't these stories seem just to be more relatable because they are about something that yeah. anybody can? Oh yeah, I mean, as a, again, they're not just about you know. Oh, look at this! We brought back an old villain, and now he's all dark and twisted, and it's yeah. it's more no, it's it's about regret. It's about. You know, all these, you know, all these wrecking, I mean, there's the moment in the, in the story where, where Robin is forced to demolish the Batmobile. Oh, uh, I felt so bad for him. Right, exactly, right, right. And you feel really sad because it's like he, in the, the narration says, it, you know, he feels like he's killing an old friend. And I'm like, wow, I'm kind of getting choked up over the fact that Robin is destroying a car. Yeah. When, and I've read entire comic books where they've killed off human characters, and I don't care. Right. Right, right. Exactly. Well, this is, like you said, though, this is one of those stories that you could take. It wouldn't necessarily have to be a Batman story, people in costume. You could take this and easily transfer this onto, um, you know, a TV episode or onto a right. novel or, you know, it just... They just happen to be wearing comic book suits, right? You know, right. it's just yep. one of those things, right? This could—I mean, you know, not to—you know—I mentioned Star Trek before. You could work. You could have Chris Pine show up in a Star Trek universe where, it, you know, after Kirk died on the Enterprise B, and and, and have the same kind of story, you know, yeah. and it would be the new Kirk dealing with the old Kirk's death, his own mortality. What's going to happen to me? Is it's going to happen to me? And everybody there resenting him. You know, mm-hmm. or if he walked into an old Star Trek convention and everyone resenting him, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know that's that, that's I don't true. resent him. I think he's pretty. Yeah, but uh, well, that's nice. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so you know, yeah, that you hit, you really touched on something. There. I mean, that that's the difference between well, there's other differences between this and modern comics, which we'll get into at the end. But but uh, specifically, that is true. I mean, they they're the comics of today. Uh, you know they are so plot and event driven uh, that that they're you know it's they're totally they're so totally removed from any kind of reality or and not even you know you know you not even realism in the way that you know like Christopher Nolan tried to get Batman as realistic as possible in his movies not that kind of realism like emotional realism like what yeah, you're saying yeah. like you can relate to this you know like you know we've all had i've had i got rid of an old car that we had for 14 years a few months ago and you know i was choked up about getting rid of that car i can't imagine having to destroy it you know it's right. like and, yeah. it's, and it wasn't the batmobile either you know <laughs> and, it, and it's again it's 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 brennard's knowledge of the history of the dcu in that when when Robin blows up the Batmobile, you immediately, as the reader, recall, you know, even if you haven't read them firsthand, twenty five to thirty some odd years of adventures, and you're right. like, wow, these are these adventures that I've seen that have been told, and these are all they all feature this car, you know, like you're you're immediately imagining this young teenage boy having the time of his life, being Robin the Boy Wonder. And how much of that is involved was, was being in the passenger seat of that car, and now he's the one who has to destroy it. You're like, 
it's a powerful moment. And, and you know, one of the other things, too, it does not hurt at all that Brennard was gifted with artists at the top of their game. I mean, yeah. he got Dick Giordano in the first one. He got Jim Apparo here, who was still doing his top-notch work. Yeah. And then later on, you know, in the third book, we, he got Joe Staten and George Freeman. He was lucky that he was just handed incredible artists. Yeah. You know, well, he was really, really gifted with that. Well, of course, you know, you got to wonder. You, you almost have to figure that the guys at DC, the editors, uh, Paul Levitz, Giordano, and then Lynn Wein, who we'll get to in a minute, they had to know that these were extra special stories, that there was something yeah. more to these. And so, you know, Jim Apparel was obviously the 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 regular artist on Bright and the Bold. And it, and this I think this was right before. He started kind of uh, having more fill-ins here around this time, but I think maybe this was right before that. Uh, but, but yeah, you, he was at he was definitely at the top of his Batman work, I think, here, because his Batman was so well defined but he looked he just looked so great i mean he had it was like almost like an animation model sheet you know it's yeah. like just like kurt swan could never draw superman off model at this point jim apparel could never draw batman off model yeah you know? and and it just it that's just the way to me it, it i mean that's just it's just batman you almost it's almost so good that you almost gloss over it because it's just so perfect. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah. the, the, nothing jumps out of it. Just, you know, Robin looks great. I mean, he draws Starman's in a few, only a few panels. He looks great. Batwoman looks really good for a woman her age, you know, but you know, <laughs> with, with she kept no, it together. Yeah. God with, bless her. She kept it together. That's right. She, she, she thought she'd keep, you know, in shape in case it, you know, Gotham ever got terrorized. She had to leave the kids at home and, and come, which there's another thing. How did Roy Thomas uh, not mind uh, the fact that Batwoman had kids? Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah, it's surprising. Yeah. Infinity Incorporated, you know. Which I wonder yeah. what he thought of these stories. The you know it kind of makes me wonder because you know the Earth Two at this point when he came to DC in what eighty eighty one he started All Star Squadron and I think eventually they actually made him officially but unpaid. The Earth Two editor, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yep. so I wonder what he thought of these these stories with uh, you know Brennard playing in the Earth Two sandbox. I guess because they were set in the modern time, uh, and I mean they really are very limited stories in terms of they only deal with three or four characters. Yeah. That's the other thing too, in terms of a thematic uh, similarity between To Kill a Legend and this one. This story takes place over the course of just a couple hours in the middle of the night, you know, mm -hmm. it's a very quick little story. It feels like it's taking place in this little off corner of the DCU while everything else is going on. I mean, it's, it's all shadowy alleys and it, it has a very film noir feel. It's like you get the sense this thing starts, starts taking place at 11 o'clock at night. And you know, when they beam him back to earth one, it's like 6 AM. So yeah. the whole thing, you know, nobody slept. Yeah. You know, everybody's, Everybody's up super late. The streets are empty. It just has that claustrophobic feel to it, which is uh, uh, really extraordinary. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and that's the thing. All these stories, and, and, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get the third one, but they're all very – again, that works in with your whole uh, – the, the point you made about them being relatable. They're very – I mean, I know Gotham's terrorized by Strange, but he's doing it specifically to call somebody out to – to end his life. It's, it's suicide by cop. I mean, yeah. it, which is, you know, something that, you know, we hear a lot of nowadays and I know they had it back then too, but I mean, they even, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, bold exploration for a, 
for a newsstand comic book too, if you really think yeah. about it. And he hands it very subtly, but it, that's what it is. I mean, he's he you know wants them to kill him, you know, because you know, yeah. he's yep. in such horrible pain and he's a misshapen hunk and all this and and and. Uh, but the stories are very personal and small. You know, they're very. Uh, you know, even though there's like, like I said, Gotham's at stake, but it's really he wasn't really out to take over Gotham or destroy Gotham so much as he was just to get Robin's attention, and you know, he just lucked into the fact that another Batman showed up. You know, so uh, which which was you know, I think that's another thing that makes it it, it feels much like the Bat the Let to Kill a Legend. It feels like a very like this isn't just it's obviously a very special story, but it's not just a normal. It's just not a run-of-the-mill, you know, newsstand filler. I'll put another one out. You know, this is yeah, yeah. this is something something else. And you know, Brenner had written a few other Brave and the Bolds, right? Because he re- re- uh, wrote the Creeper one. Yeah, uh, the one with Hawk and the Dove, one with Hawk and Dove, which is the previous issue of yeah, that. right. Yeah. And the Hawk and Dove one's really good. Of course, a lot of people give that one flack because he had them aged. Yeah. And <laughs> He's he indulging did. his uh, his inner Bob Haney there. Yeah. But it's not- just not caring about <laughs> all the various minutia of the DC universe, which I thought was funny because I didn't read that one until years later. So I got uh, I was at uh, Tales of the Teen Titans number fifty off the stand, and I think that was the next appearance of Hawk and Dove. They didn't appear very much at that time, and they're at the wedding, and somebody's like of Donna Troy, and they're like, "Gee, yeah, we we heard you guys were older," and like Hank calls like. Why does everybody keep saying yeah. that? You know, that's, that's Marv Wolfman thumbing his nose at Alan Brennard for making him older in that <laughs> story. It's like, you know, it's like, let it go, Marv. Come on, you know. <laughs> it's a good, although it is kind of because at the beginning of the story, like, Batman's actually out as Bruce Wayne with, like, uh, Barry Allen and Hal Jordan. And, and, you know, they're all, they don't look older or anything. And then, you know, Hawk and Dove are older, but Dick's not. But whatever, it's. It's yeah. still a great. It's a great. That's a great story too. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's another yep. Alan Brenner story. But and yep. the the Creeper one ended up in the uh, the greatest team up stories ever told. So, you know, there's there's another. You know, uh, obviously the people at DC obviously knew and held his stories in high regard. Yeah, uh, within the office there. So yep. Uh, the one thing that, that that struck me, I never thought about this before while I was working on the notes for this. It never explains how Hugo Strange knew where uh, the Batcave was. So he he had to either he figured out somehow or uh, knew who Bruce yeah. Wayne was Batman. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, I never thought of that either. But I guess you know. So, I mean, he's been around for forty years at that point. I guess you know. Yeah, maybe he had, guess, a lot, he had a lot of time to sit around and think about it. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, one thing that kind of did strike me a little funny, and Cindy even pointed this out when she was reading it that that. Uh, you know, at first, the Batmobile is the real model from the Batcave, but uh, uh, apparently Hugo Strange uses the cosmic rod to uh, create the Panther jet in the top uh, that the Spinner had used. So that's that's kind of out of I, – I, I could be wrong, but that seems to be kind of out of what Starman's cosmic rod usually could do. But maybe <laughs> – who knows? I mean, back then, they they defined it different. You know, Starman yeah. didn't have a lot of appearances – uh, you know, it's just sporadically in 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 JLA JSA crossovers. So he may have done something like that before, and that might be what Brennard picked up on. But uh, you know, they definitely toned that down, like in the James Robinson series. You know, mm-hmm. it was it wasn't capable of creating something that complicated. But uh, well, they're, they're clearly playing fast and loose because in that one panel where he zaps Batman back to Earth One, like 
wow, his cosmic rod can just do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this one panel, like, yeah, here you go, but like, Brent. Like, okay, I guess that was easy enough to do. Like, in JLA JSA stories, it was a big deal yeah. that they that they earth hopped. They had, like, these cubes, and they had yeah. all these all this different equipment they had to do. And here, Starman could just point his cosmic rod at you. I'm sorry, no pun intended. No, uh, yeah. No pun intended. He oh, could my heavens. Point his cosmic rod at you, and it just... Just blast you back to your home planet. Like that is a more that is a very powerful weapon. That thing. Yeah, Cindy turned red. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I thought that you know I kind of I've always taken that for granted. I mean, you would think they'd at least have the flash and the treadmill, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, or or they call Doctor Fate up or something or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's that that one is kind of. Uh, out there a little bit, but hey, you know, it's, <laughs> it it worked within the story. And I, and yeah, it's one of the right. It's one of those like who can't. It doesn't matter how he gets back to Earth one. Yeah, just, just get him back there. It doesn't really matter. That's not, that's not what the story's about. So I like. I appreciate this kind of just like rant done. All right, we're finished. Yeah, Bat- you know. Batman reappears on Earth one, and he's like Mel Brooks and Spaceballs. Why didn't somebody tell me my ass was so big? You know. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Starman beams it back to like Bora Bora. It's like, gee, thanks, Ted. I gotta get all the way back to you know. <laughs> I gotta walk. <laughs> oh, so well. I think I think I've got. That's about everything I've got on this. For that one. particular you, issue, you guys got anything else on this one? No, I think I'm good. Like I said, that's that was really the beginning of my my relationship with with Alan Brennard as a writer. I didn't know back then that comic book writers did anything else but that. You right. know, like, like felt like that was your job and. I used to just at that age. I remember thinking, "Well, I got to find these other comics that Alan Bernard writes because he's really good." I didn't realize he's only written like ten things because I just didn't know that if you were a TV writer, that you could also write comics. Like that just didn't, you know, that just was not on my brain pat, you know, my on my brain at that point. Yeah, well, I guess he was probably a rare one that did that back then too, right? I mean, that 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 didn't happen that often. (laughs) I mean, really, you know. Yeah, he clearly just was somebody who. You know, was clearly making pots of money in Hollywood, and you know, was a love and was loved comics to the point where he could dabble. I mean, kind of like Alex Toth. Yeah. You know, Alex Toth was making money in animation, and every once in a while, he did a comic book story because he just sort of felt like it. You right. know, but he didn't. He didn't have to. No. And and but at that age, I didn't know that that was a thing. So I was always like thwarted that I didn't find this mythical series that Alan Brenner was writing because, of course, it didn't exist. But I didn't know that. You know, I just was like. You know, what comic does Alan Brennan write? I want to read that comic. This Batman stuff is good. Well, you know, at that point, I was more, I was identifying artists, but writers I was still a little behind on. So at some point, I figured out that the same guy wrote all three of these stories that we're talking about tonight. And I was kind of like you. I'm like, why isn't this guy, why does this guy just pop up every once in a while? You know, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he showed up in the, the uh, Christmas with the Superheroes comic yep. and yep. wrote that Dead Man story that's just awesome. And yep. uh, he kind of thumbs his nose back at Marv Wolfman a little bit, really, in, in that one. If you think he thumbs about his it. nose at the whole DC yeah. hierarchy in that story. Yeah, yeah. Crisis, yeah, it's like which is drawn by Dick Giordano, which is kind of interesting really? considering he was like vice president of the yeah. company, and he's basically saying all the crap they just did sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I think Dick Giordano had that impish, still retained that impish. A sense of humor, even though he was like a big muckety muck at DC Comics. Yeah, in case, in case you didn't know, you, you probably read that one, Cindy. That's the one where it's a Christmas story. Dead man's uh, lamenting that he can't, you know, he can't touch anybody. Nobody knows what he does for him. He actually goes into this guy's body and 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 spends Christmas Eve with the guy's family. 
and then he realizes he feels guilty about it and leaves, and he's you know moaning and griping and complaining, and uh, this blonde lady appears to him and, and basically says, hey, you know, do you really do it for the, for the applause? And he's like, hey, I was a showman, I was an acrobat, and and she's like, yeah, but you you know you do it for other reasons. Like, yeah, you're right, and. And and he's like, who are you anyway? How can you see me? And she's like, my name's Kara, but that doesn't won't mean anything to you. And she walks off, and he can't find her. Huh. So she was Supergirl, and uh, the po- the pre-crisis Supergirl, and this was post-crisis. So. Yeah, this was after they killed her off and had erased her existence, and yet yeah. here she is, yeah, like a ghost. It's it's one of the and the huh. DC brass was like, don't do it, and they did it, and there it is, you know, heck, yeah. there it is, you know, so. Yeah, it it uh, I think yeah I heard, I heard they <laughs> was Mark Wade the editor on that one I I, I heard that, that he got some flack for that. For I think so one. yeah, and it's funny I mean again like even though that story features that little continuity nod, that story is about something else. Yeah, it's about, you know it's about loneliness. It's about you know it's a it's a about a recognizable human emotion. But then he drops in this wonderful little nod for all the comic fans out there. The guy really could hit that balance it's just ridiculous yeah. you know yeah yeah it's, it, that's a that's a great story that's that's worthy of another episode but we've kind of spoiled it now but that's <laughs> so well we'll take another break uh run another trailer and then we'll come back for our third story which is the autobiography of bruce wayne why do you think superheroes are so important people need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them something to aim for somebody to try to be like Powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Oh, and away. Atomic Batman. to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Oh, okay, so now we're back, and we're talking about our third and final story this episode. Uh, this is from Brave and the Bold, number 197, April 1983, The Autobiography of Bruce Wayne. Uh, the cover's by Jim Aparo, uh, and, of course, written by Alan Brenner, like all these. Uh, but the interior art this time is by Joe Staten and George Freeman, artist. Uh, John Costanza was a letterer. Adrian Roy was a colorist who, I think she colored almost every Batman story for like 20 years or something like that. And Len Wein was the editor of the Batman books by this point. Bruce Wayne works at his typewriter and recalls the events that led him to take his former foe Catwoman as his bride. In 1955, on the world of Earth 2, Batman answers the familiar summons of the Bat Signal. Awaiting Commissioner Gordon sees Batman die in a hail of bullets. It was all a hallucination created by the gas emanating from the box Gordon was holding. 
Batman is not surprised to find the box contains a small doll in the likeness of a scarecrow. Clearly, Batman's old foe, Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow, has returned. Later, a reluctant Bruce Wayne attends the wedding of his former girlfriend, Linda Page. Wayne's years of crime fighting are catching up to him, and he feels he has little life left outside of the Batman persona he has created. The ceremony is interrupted by the Scarecrow, who causes the guests to panic at the sight of a veritable plague of snakes and spiders. Batman and Robin leap into the fray, as does Batwoman. The Scarecrow tosses a gas bomb directly at Batman, and Robin soon fades into nothingness, followed by Batwoman and even Linda. Batman cannot see this is the result of Scarecrow's toxin, aggravating Batman's fear of being alone to extreme proportions. Unable to hear his friends or find any other loved ones to help him due to the drug's effects, the Caped Crusader seeks the aid of an enemy, Selina Kyle, a.k.a. the Catwoman. Kyle has recently surrendered herself to Batman after a head injury supposedly cured her of the amnesia that forced her into a life of crime. Batman is able to have her released from the prison she is currently incarcerated in in exchange for her help. Batman deduces that Scarecrow is doubtlessly hiding on the grounds of his old employer, Gotham University, and the uneasy partners travel there. Soon they encounter a gauntlet of obstacles and a succession of fear gases devised to elicit specific reactions from them. During one such attack, Batman takes a fiery arrow meant for Catwoman. While she treats his wound, Batman finds himself opening up to her about his origins and motivations. While regrouping in the university library, Catwoman lets slip that she did not become the feline fatale due to amnesia as she had previously led Batman to believe but instead chose her life of crime to get revenge on an abusive husband. Sorry, she should have gone burning bed. He refused her the riches he gave her when she left him. The two realize they both chose their extreme past out of anger. I believe in revenge myself. Keep that in mind, buddy. And soon found themselves... This is being recorded. I'm aware of that. And soon found themselves losing their true identities to those they constructed to cope with their trauma. They share a tender moment before searching for their foe once more. The Scarecrow launches one final attack against his foes, causing Catwoman to fear bats and Batman to fear cats. Catwoman begins to disappear to him, and she convinces the Cape Crusader that only by unmasking can they overcome the effects of the drug. A reluctant Batman finally lets go and reveals himself to Selina. The two embrace, and the effects of the drugs finally wane. Batman then reminisces about how he wed Selina shortly thereafter and finally recalls the short years they had together before her tragic death. The story closes with their tombstones, the back signal flashing above it, and their spectral images in the Gotham sky. Very good. Um, so no shadow of the bat in this one, but you do get the bat signal. So. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, this, this one... Uh, I, I will. I'm going to say something that that that, uh, that that might be shocking. I, as much as I love Jim Apparel, I do not like the cover of this comic. <laughs> I know you're shocked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean about you, you. I saw in like your notes, you said you don't like that the capes make a heart. Like you think that's a little too much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying. I still really like it because it just has all the creepy crawly stuff and the scarecrow looming on it so you know i I think if their capes hadn't been making hearts i would have and i think it still would have done the job and you would have said okay 
you know, because it would have sold the romance, but also sold the fact that the scarecrow's behind all this, and and he's mm-hmm. you know he's creepy and he's menacing. And everybody looks great, but it's just it's a little too uh, as Andrew Leyland would say on Hate Kids Comics podcast, a little too on the nose mm-hmm. uh, for you know for me. It's it kind of undercuts how how subtle the story is, you know, because mm-hmm. it's almost like a romance cover from the, you know, late sixties, early seventies or something. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and I'll be honest when I bought it, I was kind of like, you know, that's back, that's back when, you know, you, you know, I would buy a wonder woman and kind of hide it. Cause I wanted to read the huntress, but, <laughs> but I didn't want right. to say, no, people know when I was buying wonder woman. So, <laughs> sorry. You suck. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, I kind of remember thinking, oh, well, and I flip through and I'm like, oh, this looks really good. So, you know, I let it go. But, yeah, and, and my copy hasn't had the cover for years because I read it so much. So, <laughs> it's, uh, but, yeah, but as much as I love Jim Apparel, uh, the cover not so much. But uh, this is really cool that they got Joe Staten to draw this because he, he had drawn the story uh, in DC Superstars number 17 in 1977 that, that uh, introduced the concept that Batman and Catwoman had married on Earth to. Right, and right. also introduced the Huntress, so right. which is her daughter on Earth Two, and, and so you say that they were together only for a short period. It of said time. twenty years, but you know, and so maybe I shouldn't have said short. Short might not have been the best thing to put in the notes, but uh, yeah, I, when I, when you read that, I'm like, it wasn't really that short, <laughs> but but she did, you know, she did. Well, but you and I have been married for eighteen years, so you right. know, it seems like a short yeah. I mean, for us, the age so. they're at, it was a short you yeah. know period. Of, yeah, so. And, uh, uh, you know, I, the, I really like, uh, uh, Staten, uh, or state, perhaps it's Staten or Staten. I've heard it both ways. I think Staten as far as I know. Okay. Staten. Staten, uh, you know, I, he's one of those guys that I really like his stuff. Sometimes I really like it. Sometimes I'm kind of, eh, and other times I'm like, oh, I don't know. you know, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It just, uh, it just, I guess it depends on the story and he kind of, he kind of, uh, varies his art style a bit, uh, you know, from from slightly cartoony to really cartoony to, and but uh, with I always liked him on the Earth Two stuff, and George Freeman is just like the they mesh really well. Yes, they do. And you get this really very Dick Sprang like Batman. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I yeah. love me some Dick Sprang Batman. So <laughs> you know, I, I I've always been a fan of of uh, Dick Sprang's Batman. So I mean, you know, setting this on Earth Two. And, and and setting it in the in the late golden age, early silver age period, and having a very Dick Springy uh, Batman is just uh, just perfect for me. I'm sorry, I thought I was going to sneeze. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's over here like oh, it's like touching her nose and stuff. Uh, so I guess George Freeman, uh, he was didn't he like co-create Captain Canuck? Yeah, he did a lot of independent comics. So this was. This was one of his earlier, earliest jobs for like DC or Marvel, and he still never really did all that much. No, I did like for, uh, we t- for them. Yeah, you guys talked on who's the Who's Who podcast. He did the Alan Scott entry, yeah, and, and then he did the Alan Scott origin and Secret Origins a few years later. So he did the Aquaman special. Uh, That's the one, right, one that followed the uh, original blue camo suit miniseries. What? She's laughing at me because I got all excited. That's right. Uh, <laughs> it's so cool. Oh shush. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, I actually have that. I bought that. I bought that off the stands. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great artist. He's a great, great artist. Yeah, it's just, he just didn't seem to, like you said, he didn't seem to do a lot for 
for DC, which is a shame because I mean, it, he's you know him and they. I would have loved to have seen seen him and and uh, Staten do uh, do more like flashback stuff like this. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they should have uh, they should have put those guys on All Star Squadron when they were looking for an artist. You know? Oh boy, that would have been. Oh wow. Oh. <laughs> After Ordway left, and I mean Rick Holberg was good, but you know after he left, it's like they just seemed to rotate. They never could find like a regular artist on that book. Yeah, for the longest yeah, time. Oh, that would have been amazing. Yeah, that's that's been that's been perfect. Uh, I think it's you brought up Aquaman uh, earlier. Uh, you know, Batman mentions in the story that uh, uh, you know it's just him and Superman and Wonder Woman, him robbing Superman and Wonder Woman, fighting a good fight because the JSA had disbanded at this point. But apparently he forgot, you know, there was an Earth 2 Aquaman. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And Green Arrow. <laughs> him, him and everyone else, you know. So. <laughs> oh, but, you know, running around 1955. Uh, you know, again, this is another case of Alan Brenner, you know, pulling in. I mean, who had thought of Linda Page since the 40s? You know, he, right. yeah, another, he, right. Dredging that character up, you know. That's, yeah. That's amazing. And using her to show. That she's getting married, she's found happiness. Bruce Wayne's like, not even feels like he's not even living anymore. You know, Batman is taking control of his life, and and uh, you know what? You know that's like there's there's a missed opportunity. There's a life I could have led right there in front of me. And you know, as Batman's getting older, and and I thought it was neat that they you know in the story he mentions you know when Dick graduates college, well you know you know 1955, yeah he would have either been near graduating college or out of college, you know, if he started when he was like 12 and or 10 or 12 in 1940 or whatever, you know, right, so, right, yeah. so I thought, I thought that was neat that, you know, he, he, he progressed, uh, you know, pr you know, you really do feel like this is an older, it's an older Batman, but he's not out of the prime of his life. You know, it's, it, you know, you, you get the, you know, the actual golden age tales and you get the, you know, the gray templed, uh, Silver Age or Bronze Age interpretations of these characters, but you rarely get that in between era, you know. And and that's that's one thing I like about this, you know. Um, one thing that Cindy's slipping through the book, uh, I think this is probably the introduction of Batman's uh, scarred up back. Yes, yeah, I was going to mention that. I mean, that's a throwaway little bit that that Brennard works in, which has then been used by like about probably about half a dozen different comic writers and. They used it as a little detail in the Nolan movies too. Right, I mean, right. it's like that—that that became part of the Batman story. Yep. Was that this guy is a scarred-up mess, and that was something Brenner just tossed away in yep. a one little panel. You know, Batman, Catwoman is like, "Oh my god," and Batman's like, "Oh yeah, you deal with it." You know, like wow, yeah. that you know, what a great <laughs> little character moment, and it's just a one-panel little thing. Yeah, uh, that that even when I was a kid, I'm like. Well, you know, Batman would be all cut up. And... I never thought of it before. You're like, oh, yeah. I mean, when, he, when Bruce Wayne goes to the gym to work out, what do the other guys in the locker room think? Yes. They, like, exactly. What yeah, what does this guy do in his spare time? He's got bullet wounds. He's got scar tape. Like, what does this guy do when he's not in the boardroom? This is crazy. Well, think, he's in the fight club with Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. It's crazy. That's, it's like, uh, it, you know, I think... Uh, like on the animated series, I think they had him at the one time they had him in the gym, and all these other guys were, you know, wearing, uh, uh, you know, just muscle uh, muscle shirts, wife beaters, and shorts, and, and he had a full sweatsuit on. Right. And I don't know if that was their way of so he wouldn't show off his physique or 
or he wouldn't show off his scars or well, but you know I mean that's uh, that was uh, you know that was a cool way to deal with it but yeah you know I, the first time I remember after this seeing that was Alex Ross did a painting mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that was in I think it was in Batman Black and White maybe uh, in the miniseries and then he did I think a color version later and maybe worked it into one of the stories uh, might have been Batman War on Crime the tabloid book I can't remember off the top of my head but. And then yeah, it showed up. It showed up other places, but yeah, the scene in the Dark Knight when he's like stitching himself up, and you know, and Alfred just like it shows Michael Caine glance down at his back, and yep. and it shows his back, and I'm like, yep, that's that's Alan Brennan right there, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's that, that was that was great. Yeah, so yeah, this is the this is the beginning of Batman's jacked up back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so everybody can thank Alan Brennan for that one. Uh, so it's cool, uh, you know, a Batwoman appears again in this one. She didn't get a lot to do, but, uh, you know, it's uh, clearly Alan Brenner had a, you know, must, must have been fond of the character to, mm-hmm. yeah, to yeah. place her here again, which is, it, it kind of ties it into the other, you know, these are, you know, the more we talk about it, the more these feel like <laughs> these three stories are, you know, connected, uh, besides just the writer and the, the character of Batman, obviously. Um, the, the Scarecrow, um, I had, uh, I had actually, I liked the Scarecrow even by this point. I, he was one of my favorite Batman villains because he always got interesting stories with the Scarecrow. It wasn't just, you know, Batman solving a riddle or this and that. It was it was always some kind of psychological angle. You got more into Batman's character just by the nature of what the Scarecrow put him through, you know. Yep, yep. And, and uh, so the challenge, of, the, of course, the challenge of the Super Friends, he didn't, he didn't get to do that type of stuff, but he was on it, so I knew him from that. And then there was a great story in like Detective Number Five Hundred Three, which I think was written by Jerry Conway, uh, where you know Scarecrow makes everybody else afraid of Batman. Like, and they, they see Bruce Wayne, and they just freak out. And and uh, so I remembered that. So when you got into this and the fear gas and everything, it it uh, I just thought it was a really cool angle and, and a great villain to use. Uh, you know, just I mean, it's just like like you said with the first story. It's just. You know, there's nothing extraneous in the story. It all just works together. And, uh, you know, tying back to the the, the angle of Catwoman uh, getting uh, amnesia and becoming Selena Kyle, getting amnesia, becoming Catwoman, and then getting hit on the head and then saying, oh, well, you know, I, I had amnesia. I didn't know who I was. You know, and I, that was actually from a, silver, I mean, a Golden Age comic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, it was, it was cool that they, uh, it was a, from Batman number 62 from December 1950. Uh, that was cool that, you know, Alan Brennard, without like totally destroying the character, turned that on its nose, you know, and said, you know what? No, she really knew what she was doing, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and made her a much more interesting character because of that. And, you know, the fact that they still, found the common ground and, and, and still fell in love and still married makes it even more interesting than, oh, I wasn't really bad. It was just a conk on the head. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, just, and that's the type of, you know, that's, the, this story, you know, around this time DC was doing stories, you know, like the new Teen Titans would have stories with similar themes like this. You had stories like Who is Donna Troy and things like that. But they were very, they were very mature stories emotionally without all the things that, you know, there wasn't gore. There wasn't, you know, dismemberments and, you know, all this, all this stuff going on. There wasn't rape, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was an emotionally mature story without getting into 
all the mature label type stuff that you have to slap on a book nowadays if if you want to put it in front of a kid, which they don't even try. But oh no, I mean. I'm the public library. I'm uh, the children's librarian at the public library, and I every graphic novel that comes into the library, I have to read it and see where it goes. And if it's pretty, if it's New Fifty Two, it automatically goes in the adult section. I don't yeah. even have to read it. I really don't because I know that's, that's where it's going to end up. Right. That's yeah. so sad. <laughs> so sad. I mean, but it's the truth. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, no, I know. Because the way my books, the way I have the books uh, separated out is I have an easy graphic novel section, which is for your itty-bitties. I mean, I'm talking like four- and five-year-olds up through about seven or eight. Then you have juvenile, which is eight to 12. And then you have young adult, which is 12 to 18. And then you have an adult section. And, I mean, I'm very cognizant of the fact of what I'm willing for these kids to be exposed to. And, I mean, if their parents want to take them to the adult section and check out The Walking Dead... They can, because, you know, we, of course, don't censor. We're a public library. But at the same time, I do put that information out there because modern comics, I'm like, oh, my heavens. Yeah, there's not. Yep. I mean, there's there's books out there, but the general, the, the, you know, like the like Batman 66, that's a that's a book a kid could read, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and that's that's good stuff. And, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having the other. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's just, it, you know, this was a, to me, and, and, I, and I'm going to get on, a, I guess, my high horse here a little bit. To me... This was probably about as far as superhero comics needed to go as far as that into quote unquote mature storytelling. I that I mean that's my personal opinion. I mean it, it's it's very uh I mean the the, the 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 characters that are licensed you know that are on bed sheets that are on children's playthings and diapers and you know, to, to, I have a problem with, with that, and I guess we're getting off on a tangent here, but to take the characters like that and then do things that are really extreme with them just it kind of mm. disturbs me, you know, and, and, and it, it bothers me as a parent. And, and I'm not saying they should be censored and all this and that, but I just, I just, I kind of lament the fact that they did go beyond something like this because this is a very poignant, well told story. And again, it's not. I mean, this is obviously something that there's there's, there's action in it, and, and and you know enough to keep a kid interested. But even as a kid, I realized that this was kind of above my head. But I understood it, and I, you know, it, it it made me think. Well, Batman, you know, Batman's got feelings, and he's a you know they, they've made him seem like a real person, and right, you know, and and and, and that was you know that was great. I I don't know that that I'm I'm getting off. On, I'll get off on my high horse, but I, I just sometimes. I really feel like DC, and, and I don't know so much about Marvel at the time, but DC, like right around this time, right before Crisis, they had, they and I, maybe that's because that's when I was really getting into it, but I feel like they really had a good mix of the, you know, the superhero daring do and all that, and these, the human elements, the human interest aspects of the stories, without going so far into it that you just couldn't hand the book to anybody. Yeah, yeah. there's a way to tell a story for adults, but it doesn't feature anything that's unobjectionable to children. Now, but that takes skill, and it takes taste, and it takes uh, discretion. Actual talent? Uh, Well, I'm not going to go talent. I'm not going to say that. I will. Well, I I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that because a lot of talented people, but I just think, think it takes a certain level of discretion 
that nowadays just doesn't exist because right. now it's just no balls to the wall, full out rip, have Superboy rip people's arms out because <laughs> we can. Yeah, and you know, yeah, I mean, like to me, Brenner really gives up the ghost in this story when. They, uh, Batman and uh, Selina are in the wherever they are at the end there, and they're like, uh, um, Selina's like, "Hey, Scarecrow is getting away," and Batman's like, "It doesn't matter. We'll capture him eventually. Yeah. This is more important." That's Alan Brenner just really sort of slapping the comic book fan in the face yeah. and saying, "No, the important thing is the romance here, not this stupid villain thing." Because that mm-hmm. he's just going to be back next month anyway. So what's right. the damn difference? Yeah. This is the important thing. Yeah, the human know, connection, he just made. The human connection, right. Yeah. And I remember reading that story when I was 12 or 13, and even then I was like, wow, they're just letting Scarecrow get away. Yeah. And I and I thought it was great. And the other the other thing, the other gag I loved, I just and I'm only getting this because I just didn't want to forget it, I love that when Catwoman is trying to save Batman and they're listening to that Scarecrow's lecture yeah. on fear, and Catwoman smashes the recorder, and she's like, am I the only villain that doesn't deliver boring lectures? Like, I love that <laughs> within, within the realm of Batman villains, they all annoy each other. I like yeah. that idea that Catwoman's like, oh god, that's annoying, Scarecrow. Like, yeah. I just, I think that's a good character beat on her part, where she's like, I just want to steal stuff. Right. I, I don't have this obsession with teaching people about fear toxins and all this crap. I just want to steal stuff to be rich. That's all. And I think she even you know? says something like, I, I never wanted you to come. I didn't try to tempt you to chase me. I wanted to stay as far away from you as I could. You know, and you see this story. I mean, you really can only see the story in, in retrospect, but you look at it now and you say, well, you know, DC was just starting to ramp up crisis they were just the beginnings of them working on it at this point and you really look at this and say this story does feel like a very autumnal goodbye to this era of com of superhero comics that was about to be completely wiped away you know uh, in in just a couple of years and it has that and but i think partly that it that it comes when it does in in the final last couple issues of brave and the bold Mm -hmm. Uh, it just has that feeling of like Hey, let's revisit these characters. Even though the Earth Two Batman appeared in Brave Bold Number Two Hundred, it, it it has that feeling of like let's give the Earth Two Batman another a nice little go round one more time. Yeah, it's before swan he, song for lack of a better term. Absolutely, before he is shuffled off uh, into a corner of of our publishing history, let's give him a nice little bow and give him some happiness. And uh, I think, and again, it's about recognizable human emotions about the fear of getting older, the, the, the choices you've made and being happy with them. It's all about real people. Real, yeah. you know, it's, it's a guy dressed in a bat suit, but it's a real human emotion. And, uh, that's Brenner just nails it every single time. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah. Well, and I, I think to, to me, his, his Batman and his take on Batman feels quite a bit. And we always tooting, Bruce Timm's horn on this show, but to me, it feels like that very well-rounded uh, human Batman that you, that you got on like Batman the animated series and and yeah. the subsequent show. And you know that's that I, I don't you you kind of hit the nail on the head again there where you said I, I don't know if Batman ever felt more real as a person than he did in these these stories. Uh, you know, I mean, you just because he was. You know, he he had a wide range of emotions that 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 he showed in this story in particular, and, and but in all three, really. 
And, you know, it was, it was more than, like you said, the villain wasn't important. The Scarecrow was just kind of there to, to, to put them through their, the paces of, of finding each other, you know, more or less. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. When, when I first read this, I'm like, he's going to let the scarecrow run off. <laughs> yeah. It bothered me too. Now that you say that, I'm like, oh, well, uh, I guess. And I was kind of like, well, why didn't Robin, where's Robin? And I, but you know, as I got older and read it again, I'm like, well, of course, if they had him catch the scarecrow and if they'd had Robin show back up in it, it would have totally undermined that dramatic moment where they embrace and, you know, he, he yeah. reveals himself as Bruce Wayne and, you know, it pretty much ends the flashback ends there other than showing them, you know, coming out of the chapel when they're married. Um, yeah. So it's just, it, it, it's just great. I, I love, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, just a perfect, it's got such a perfect ending and you're right. It does feel like that it is, you know, the, the earth to Batman, you know, it was kind of, I guess that was kind of a point in the way his death in the adventure comics, JSA stories, was kind of random. I mean, it, you know, I mean, there was a villain that was calling out Bruce Wayne and Batman shows up, but it wasn't a major, it wasn't a Batman foe, a classic foe. It was, you know, he died saving Gotham, but it just, it was kind of, you know, sudden and over and done, you know, and, and yeah. the, the other characters dealt with the aftermath of it, but this was a nice, you know, way to, to look back at him and, and kind of give him a, maybe, you know, give his own epitaph in a way, you know? So yeah, it, it was nice. It, it's kind of interesting because right, not too long after this, uh, it was like a couple of years. They did the, uh, right as crisis was starting, they did that America versus the justice society miniseries. Right. And, and right. Batman's diary was kind of the whole, uh, the impetus of that whole plot line. Right. Because he like, yeah. Yeah. They, they found his diary and he like, he said the JSA were traitors or something, but it was all some complex thing Batman set up to stop Per Degaton from screwing with time. Or it was, it was, <laughs> it was. It's, it's a very complex story. It is. It's it's very. It's Roy Thomas that is you know, which I love Roy Thomas's stuff. But you know, he could he could get deep into complex plots, and it's it, 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 that story definitely disappears and down into the rabbit hole. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, it's, I don't think I've read that, but it sure sounds convoluted. Yeah. Well, it, it's it, well, it's basically. It's 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 kind of in a way like the Untold Legend of the Batman because it's Thomas's way of showing the basically going through the history of the JSA. Mm. I mean, he basically recaps all the the, the <laughs> major beats. Yeah, yeah. It's the only comic book miniseries I can think of that required extensive endnotes. <laughs> it has its own appendix. It's in a way, it's a precursor to his All Star Companion books. I mean, mm. cause, yeah, cause yep. he you know turned he yeah. turned cranked out four of those and. I've devoured every one of them, so <laughs> that's uh, great stuff. So you know, um, you know, overall thought uh, for me on all these stories in general, uh, you know, uh, you know, of course, like we said, they all involve the parallel Earth concept. Uh, that you know, and I think in a way, he shows that that this concept was a was a strong one, and it, it he didn't have to have huge cosmic earth-shattering, universe-destroying stories in, in, like, the JLA-JSA team-ups. You could do these private little stories, and they were just mm -hmm. as interesting mm -hmm. and just as, you know, just as captivating as those huge mega-crossover, let's involve some other super team, let's go to this earth, let's go to that, that earth. And, uh, you know, I've, I've said it before, and as much as I love Crisis, and I think it's a great series, I think that DC... I think it was a misstep for them to, to do away with the parallel Earths. I, I think, you know, 
Uh, just like Alan, and I, and, I, and I know Alan Moore is, to me, Alan Moore's a great writer. I'm not taking anything away from him. I think sometimes he's he's put on too much of a pedestal by others. But I do think, you know, most of his DC work was was great. And the stuff he did with, like, the Silver Age Superman aspects that other writers, other readers and other writers would consider hokey, he made those things work. And mm-hmm. in a way that Alan Brennert made other, you know, other elements of Batman's uh, Silver Age and Golden Age work, and he also made the parallel Earth concept, showed how strong it could be. Uh, it's all in how you handle it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Uh, um, so it's it's kind of a shame, and, and again, that's probably one reason why he wrote the Christmas story he did with Dead Man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we don't, I don't know that, but you know, you just kind of got to feel because he definitely played in the parallel Earth sandbox in almost every DC story he did, um, which, uh, you know, the familiar world of Earth 2 and then that unfamiliar world with uh, where they saved the Waynes. But, uh, you know, I, I think he... Uh, I, and another thing, and I kind of brought this up earlier, he is a Hollywood... He came from Hollywood, a uh, screenwriter. He came to DC. He, he got to play with the characters... And, and no, he was never a regular writer on a title, but he put the characters back where he found them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. There was no, you know, there was no uh, lobotomizing of villains. There was no raping of supporting characters. Brad Meltzer. There was no, <laughs> there was no, Batwoman did not have an affair with the Joker, you know, uh, J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, there, was, there was, there was, there was none of that that you know. You feel he's like he's the kid that your mom wants to come over to play with you. Yeah, right, right. He's gonna put his <laughs> now. Johnny, when when Alan comes over, he puts all your action figures back in the box. <laughs> but when yeah, J. Michael comes over, he rips the arms off and yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who? Yeah, I mean, who couldn't write a, a, a like a Wonder Woman story if you were allowed to completely upend her universe? Right. Well, yeah, you can do that, but it's a lot harder to write a story that is compelling and interesting uh, that features, again, recognizable human emotions, but also features all the trappings of, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, and Alan does love this stuff. I mean, he li- he lives and breathes this comic book minutia. Yeah. It's not like he has a, it's, he clearly loves it, but I think he is so talented that he doesn't let his love of the minutia overwhelm the story he's trying to tell. And I think that can happen with a lot of comic book writers that just grew up on comics. They just let that stuff just take over. And he, he, you know, he doesn't, he, he, he's always, it's always like kind of a a seasoning uh, on his stories, as opposed to it being, you know, the main thrust of, of that, you know, I, I, that's something again, that I really enjoy. And, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I can understand on a basic level why DC said, look, you just got to have one Batman. It yeah. reduces it reduces the specialness of Batman if you got two Batmans running around. I totally get that. At the same time, uh, you know, you wouldn't get these stories if there were no Earth Two Batman. You wouldn't get these compelling stories, and you you know, it gives Batman a different angle that you would have never have had. And and of course, if there never been Earth Two Batman, you wouldn't get him marrying Catwoman. You wouldn't get him having a child because you can't do all that. Right, and continue right. to have this merchandisable property because obviously superheroes can't have children, and when they do, Aquaman, they kill the kid off. Uh, <laughs> or, Damien. Know, or Damien. Or Damien, they kill the kid off. But I mean, it's it's so. I mean, well, you, you should know, kill the kid off. Well, yeah. I mean, you, 
you you gain a lot from streamlining, but you also lose a lot. And yeah. uh, there is something to be said for saying, you know, hey, you know, yeah, this universe is a little complex, but it doesn't mean you can't tell compelling stories that the average person can read, uh, you know, and, and enjoy, and that's it. You know, you don't need to have all 26 issues of who's who next to you to understand. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, you, you don't need to know. All, you can take all three of these comics and just... He tells you everything you need to know, you know, yeah. I mean, right off the bat, you know, you don't, they, it's all explained it. And he didn't even really in the, in the earth two stories, he didn't do the panel that showed, uh, Jim Apparel didn't have to draw the panel that showed Barry Allen and then yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay Garrick. And, and, and again, oddly, but you still knew what was going on, but, and, you know, and my point about the, and I've always just, ever since the influx of the Hollywood writer into comics, into the modern mainstream comics, you know, you just really felt like these, and I, you know, these editors have just been like, hey, you're the, you're the big mega selling, you know, author or novelist or screenwriter. Yeah, do what you want. You know, it's just, you know, uh, and, you know, and I mean, I like, I, I can enjoy the I can appreciate the craft in stories like Identity Crisis, but you know there's there's no denying that you know Brad Meltzer's like I'm a huge fan of the the Bronze Age JLA. Well, you made everybody <laughs> distrust each other. You've raped Sue Dibney. You, you yeah. You made, I mean you yeah. know just it's just I mean not to get too far into that stuff, but it, it, it well I couldn't help but think of that while I was working on this episode. It's like now here's a Hollywood writer that came in and you know he 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 explored. He, he explored the characters in a way they hadn't been explored before and some facets of them, but he didn't just leave this nasty taste in your mouth. You know, it's if like, they, oh, did they have to do that? <laughs> if that's what you do when you're a fan, I can't wait to see what you do if you really hate somebody. I mean, man, I mean. Right, right, right. You know, and, and, and you know, like Straczynski and the whole the sins past thing with Gwen Stacy and Norman Osborne. I mean, that's just that to me, that's just, I don't care what you wrote. That's just wrong. (laughs) So, well, I get too far off on that, but yeah. So, so we, you know, I, I would, Alan Brennert, uh, as far as he wrote, uh, in addition to that Christmas with the superheroes, he wrote the, was it a Batman Alan Scott story in, yeah, the Batman Black and White segment. Yeah, Batman uh, Gotham of, uh, yeah, yeah, Gotham Knights. And he wrote uh, the Elseworlds story, Batman Holy Terror. Yes, Norman uh, Vogel artwork. Yeah, yeah. the Norman Bray were Batman. And that is the only time Alan Brenner has ever written Aquaman for one panel. Oh, uh, yeah. Aquaman appears in Holy Terror. That's the only time he's ever written Aquaman, unfortunately. He's one of the guys in the tanks, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they, you see he's been this, he's this lobotomized... Uh, guy who they, they you know this 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 uh, super theological world uh, government has taken over and grabbed this guy out of the sea and basically plucked at his brain to learn stuff and turned him into a vegetable. So that's our one shot at Aquaman. Is is, is that that thing by Alan Brenner? But it's that's a darker story for Alan Brenner. Alan Brenner's stuff is generally very upbeat. Yeah. Uh, but that's a pretty dark story. But he could do that. I mean, he you know he doesn't shy in his books. He doesn't shy away from some of the darker elements of. Of a, a human um, uh, experience, so you know well, he's capable the, of it. The first book's about like the leper colony in Hawaii, right? I mean, I haven't read it yet. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, but I've, I've, I'm interested to read it, and I've read about it. And yeah, so, you know, that's pretty dark, right? <laughs> that's pretty heady yep. subject there. So, so you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, I hope um, you know. I hope the people listen to this. If you haven't 
uh, check these stories out. Uh, they are definitely available uh, out there to check out. The um, I don't know. Uh, they've done a few other greatest Batman stories ever told books. I don't know. Are these... Is To Kill a Legend and... Uh, Autobiography of Bruce Wayne still in the current version, or do you do you know, Rob? I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. know either. But if you if you want to track down the the 1989 version of the greatest Batman stories ever told, it uh, the uh, Kill Legend and Autobiography of Bruce Wayne are in that book. And then there's a fairly recent uh, book called Secrets of the Batcave, uh, which I just picked up at a Comic Con um, a few months ago, and I, I didn't know I, this one had slipped under my radar. And as you might guess, it's a Batcave-themed stories, uh, but it actually has Interlude on Earth 2 in it. Oh, uh, that's cool. That's yeah, cool. It, it reprints that one, and uh, I guess because, you know, the battle, the final battle happens in the Batcave. Uh, and it's a, it's a great little trade paperback. I've really been enjoying it. Uh, so they are out there uh, to, re, you know, if you can find uh, reprints of them. Uh, so I, we all recommend you check out anything Alan Brennert wrote and... Uh, it's all good. <laughs> it is. And we mean that literally. It yes. is all good. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. And and like you said, a good chunk of it's great and some of it's just freaking fantastic. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean I, I, I look at it like if he was a baseball player, you would say he went to bat he only had ten at bats, but he hit like six home runs three RBIs and a single. You know, you'd be like, that's the greatest baseball player of all time. That's right. Anyway. That's right. So, so check those out. And, uh, so, uh, I think that'll about do it, uh, for us here. Uh, Rob, uh, you want to tell people where they can find you? Oh, they must be tired of me by now. Uh, AquamanTrine.net, uh, and, uh, my, my book, Hey Kids Comics, Trula Tales from the Spinner Rack, available on Amazon.com. Yeah, you need to read that. That is a great book. I, I And I'm not saying that because you're my friend. I, that is a great book. I mean, it's I just enjoyed the stories and that. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, there's just so many. I mean, there's about any kind of life experience with comics you can imagine in that. I mean, there's just from... From Alan Brennert's, you know, story of yeah, and yeah, a story by Alan Brennert. <laughs> yeah, a story by Alan Brennert, and and then, but there's so many that I mean, the the, the Hey Kids Thud story by Charlie Fish is just so yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just a great. I can just see myself in that, and then and then there, but there's there's some very you know touching stories where comics got people through some really tough times, and uh, it's just a great book. Uh, Thank and, you. Thank and, you very much. And uh, I, check it out. Go to Amazon and. And get you a copy, and, and you definitely won't be disappointed. Uh, so, well, I guess that's going to do it for now. And uh, I think maybe next episode we might uh, do some listener feedback. I think so. And uh, read what's been coming in. And uh, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys thank later. Thank you so much to Rob. Yes, thank you, Rob. Thanks for stopping by and and, uh, and gracing us with your incredible knowledge it was fun talking to you as, as always and uh hey we're buttering your biscuit for next time yeah that's right <laughs> and we hope to have nice. you back. oh it sounds good i'm getting hungry now that sounds good uh, yeah me too uh and you know uh, we hope to have you back on sometime and uh we'll uh probably do a power record at some point again i'm sure and yes uh, we will yeah so that those are always great so uh so take care everyone see ya bye, bye. well that was fun Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide. The fictional characters and events mentioned in this show are trademarked and copyright their respective owners. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their owners, and we mean no infringement by either. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast.
If you travel it in the North Country Fair, where the wind hit heavy on the borderline, remember me to one who lives there. True love of mine.